Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. This morning we're going to look at the first two verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. So please flip your, the pages of your copy of God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 1. As we look at the beginning of Peter's letter, we will see his greeting to the churches that he wrote to. But before we dig into our, um, today's text, I'd like to look at a modern-day analogy that most of us ought to be familiar with, and that is the greeting card. At some point in your lives, I'm sure all of you have had the experience of going to a greeting card store like Hallmark, or perhaps to the greeting card aisle at your local grocery store. If you're like me, you've paced back and forth through the aisles in search of the perfect card that communicates the perfect greeting for the occasion. What you're looking for is a card that highlights something about yourself or the recipient of your card, or even better, something that you both have in common. If you're also like me, you're not artistic, you're not creative, and so you're willing to pay four or five dollars for a card with a greeting that's appropriate for your occasion. Uh, if you're like my kids, however, uh, you've got the creative genes in you, and you can completely customize a card with the greeting of your choice matched to the occasion and to the recipient of your card. For several years now, I've received custom Father's Day cards from my kids. They know that my favorite pastime is saltwater fishing from my kayak. <laughs> so a common Father's Day card that I receive from them involves a drawing on the front with me in a boat catching fish. The inside of the card then has a greeting that's typical of most Father's Day cards that are given to dads. The pattern goes something like this. Dear Dad, that's me, the recipient. Happy Father's Day, the greeting. And then you have the meat of the card, where they might write something nice about what they appreciate about me as a dad or whatever else. And then the card ends with something like, Your son, Caleb, the writer. This greeting pattern can be seen in any modern greeting card, like Mother's Day, Valentine's Day, anniversaries, Christmas, and so on. And the pattern goes like this. You have the reader, you address the reader, you have the greeting, the body of the card, and then the card ends with the writer. The pattern of greetings in the Roman Empire during the first century, however, was typically in a different order. You would have identification of the writer, identification of the reader, and then the greeting, all up front, before the letter. A simple example of this can be found in the book of Acts. You don't have to turn there, but in Acts chapter 23, as Paul is being moved around as a prisoner, the Roman commander sends a letter with Paul to the governor Felix, where the letter begins like this. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. So you've got the writer, the reader, and the greeting. And that was how greetings were written in letters back then. Also during this time, the phrase grace and peace became a common greeting among the Christians. Grace and peace came to be used regularly in Christian letters instead of the simple word greetings. That's why you see it in the beginning of nearly every New Testament letter. Letters written by Paul, by Jude, John, and of course, as we'll see today, Peter. 
Grace and peace is used numerous times in the New Testament, but have you ever paused to think about what the words of this greeting mean? For example, what's meant by the word grace? Let me paraphrase the words of pastor and writer John Piper. John Piper says this, Grace is not only God's favor toward us that is undeserved, but it's also an influence or a force or power of God that works in us to change our capacity for work and suffering and obedience. Let me repeat that for you. Grace is not only God's favor toward us that is undeserved, but it's also an influence or a force or a power of God that works in us to change our capacity for work and suffering and obedience. So grace is given to us not only at the point of our salvation, but God continues to give grace to his people every day so that they can live holy lives of obedience in any and all circumstances. And then what about peace, grace and peace? What's meant by peace in this distinctly Christian greeting? Peace is the result of receiving God's grace. It's a sense of not having any worry or anxiety, and its its source is God's grace itself, his grace which forgives sinners and reconciles them with himself. The Christian who has received God's grace no longer lives in opposition to God. They no longer have any worry, but they have peace. So now as we turn our attention to Peter's letter, We can be sure that his letter wasn't written in a bifold card from Hallmark with an artful design or a rote greeting, Um, but instead, Peter customized and catered his greeting for his intended readers. He does this with words and embellishments of all three parts of his greeting of grace and peace. Like the custom Father's Day cards from my kids, Peter customized the greeting of his letter to match his audience and the occasion for sending his letter. So this morning, we'll examine the embellishments of Peter's three-part greeting to look at how grace and peace was experienced by Peter and his readers and how it can be ours also as disciples of Christ. So let's read Peter's greeting in this letter now. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So the outline for today's message is going to follow Peter's three-part greeting here. First, we're going to look at grace and peace for Christ's apostle, Peter. Then we'll look at grace and peace for the chosen exiles or aliens. And finally, we will consider how we can obtain grace and peace in the fullest measure. So we're going to look at the writer, the readers, and the greeting. Let's begin with a look at grace and peace for the writer, Christ's apostle, Peter. In his greeting, Peter names himself as the author, but he decorates his own address with a qualifier. He calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. His decoration of his identity in this threefold greeting 
was a way to emphasize Jesus, the Christ, rather than himself. Notice that he didn't say Peter, the father of the church, and he didn't say Peter, the favorite disciple. Uh, no, he was Peter, an apostle of Jesus, the Christ. As an apostle, Peter was a follower of Jesus, and he was commissioned by the Lord to go out and teach and to make disciples. As an apostle, Peter was also the recipient of much grace from God and supernatural peace. I want to look at three events of Peter's life that model to us how to live in grace and peace ourselves. First, consider how Peter initially met Christ. Peter was the first to be picked as a disciple of Jesus. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, his story recounts how Peter's brother, Andrew, first heard Jesus' teaching and then brought Peter to introduce him to Jesus, the Messiah. It was in that first meeting between Jesus and Peter that our Lord gave him the name Peter. In John chapter 1, verse 42, we see uh, this written, He, Andrew, brought him, Peter, to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You're Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. In Peter's first encounter with Jesus, God extended his grace to Peter by giving him this prophetic name. The name Peter is derived from the Greek word Petra, which means stone or rock. And Cephas is derived from the Aramaic word kephas, which has the same meaning of stone or rock. God chose Peter before he had done anything for the Lord, and God ordained that Peter will be involved in the forming of the foundation of Christ's church. So you might also think, what's in a name? What's special about a name? Well, in the Bible, a name means a lot. While Jesus told Peter here in, in John chapter 1 that going forward his name would be the word for rock, Jesus actually still uses his old name Simon on a few occasions. And typically, it was when there was a teaching moment for this poor disciple. An example of this is found in Luke's account of the final gathering of Jesus and his disciples. In the upper room, Jesus addresses Peter's overconfidence by saying, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Those are some sober words of warning for this overzealous disciple. And Peter responds, as you would expect from a passionate disciple, saying that he would go to prison or even die for him. And as we know, he failed colossally and later denied knowing Jesus three times. Jesus used Peter's old name again in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus brought Peter, James, and John to the Garden at Gethsemane to pray with him. And Jesus even said to the three of them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. So Jesus goes and he prays alone, and soon he returns to find that all three of them had dozed off and fallen asleep. But who does Jesus reprimand? Jesus reprimands Peter, and he says these words. He says, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? In that moment, Simon wasn't worthy of being addressed as the rock 
that the Lord was training him to become. So coming back to Peter's letter now, into this greeting, we see that Peter embraced that name that Jesus gave to him. He didn't cower back. He didn't return to his old ways and to his old name. Instead, he embraced Jesus, who upon first meeting Peter, chose him and gave him a name that would define his role as an apostle for the rest of his life. The second event of Peter's life that highlights his experience of grace and peace is when Jesus foretold that Peter would suffer. Peter first received this warning in Jesus' general warning to all of his disciples. Uh, Jesus warns them in John 15 and in Matthew 10 that the world will hate them on account of him. In fact, Jesus said, a time would come when people would think they're offering a service to God by persecuting and even killing Christians. So when Peter wrote this letter, that time had certainly already come. In addition to the general warning to the disciples, Peter also received a personal warning from Jesus after his resurrection of future suffering. Look at John chapter 21 with me. John chapter 21, verses 18 and 19. There, Jesus, the, the resurrected Jesus says to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Imagine living your entire life with this looming knowledge that you would finish your time on earth in this way, that your movement would be restricted, that you would be taken to be hung upside down. Uh, Peter needed extra measures of grace and peace for the rest of his life. And so following his warning of how Peter will die, Jesus tells him, follow me. And God provided grace and peace for Peter so that he could concentrate on this last instruction that Jesus gave to him to follow him. The third part of Peter's life that demonstrates his experience of grace and peace was his life after Jesus' ascension. The book of Acts recounts the many ways that Peter suffered, just as Christ said he would. Yet we also see Peter growing into that name that was given to him, as he boldly leads and strengthens God's church. Peter was taken to court to defend his preaching because it was leading many of his hearers to convert to Christianity. Now, that may sound like a good thing, but that was not what the government back then wanted. And we'll look at more into that later when we look at the readers of this letter. Um, but for Peter, he was also flogged for preaching Christ. And in chapter 12, Peter was imprisoned by King Herod with the intent to execute him after he executed another disciple, James. And he saw that it pleased the Jews. And finally, Jesus' warning of how Peter would eventually be killed came true. Before his own execution, Peter watched as his wife was led away to be executed first. There's an extra-biblical account of Peter and his wife's execution that re that's recorded in this way. I quote, Peter rejoiced on account of her, his wife's call, and, and conveyance home, and called very encouragingly and comfortingly, addressing her by name. 
Remember thou the Lord. And then soon after, Peter himself was executed by crucifixion. It is said that Peter requested to be hung upside down because he was unworthy of dying in the same way that his teacher did. And so we see this um, measure of peace and grace in Peter's life. So that's all to say that Peter, he was qualified to write to this persecuted group of Christians. He was qualified to write to them grace and peace. And that's because he was a man to whom God had given the greatest measures of grace and peace. But that measure of grace and peace was given in order to match the measure of suffering and persecution that was required to follow and obey Christ. So let me ask you guys, Cascades Bible Church, how about you? Have you made the decision to abandon your old life and to follow Christ? Are you mistreated or suffering for that? If or when you are, take heart because like Peter, God will give you the grace and peace to endure it. So we saw how God's grace and peace was given to Peter, the apostle of Christ. Now let's look at how grace and peace was given to the chosen exiles to whom Peter wrote. Peter's greeting continues like this. To those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Peter's letter was written to Christians across a large swath of the Roman Empire. Uh, Where was Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia? These were all cities in the northern areas of modern-day Turkey, and they all extended just a little further out from all the cities that Paul visited during his second missionary journey. What this suggests is that a lot of missionary work was done by the early church that was not recorded. Uh, Converted Christians from the areas that Paul visited and preached in must have taught and spread the gospel in their neighboring towns. Now, why were these Christians living as aliens? Were they really aliens and exiles? Well, the the readers were actually not dispersed from their original homes, so they were not actual aliens or exiles from their hometowns. Peter describes them as dispersed because God chose them from among these separate Roman provinces. They were spread out because the gospel message itself had spread out. Peter also calls them aliens because he was emphasizing their identity as citizens of heaven, not of the Roman government. This idea of alien citizenship, specifically of heavenly citizenship, is reinforced later in Peter's letter. Uh, In 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, Peter wrote, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why would Peter de-emphasize their Roman citizenship? Well, one reason is that their experience was not of oneness or belonging to anyone outside of the church. For one thing, they were hated by the Jews. 
Luke records in Acts chapter 12 that the Jews actually cheered during the execution of James. The response from the Jews was so passionate. It was like a stadium full of fans cheering for their favorite team uh, that it pushed Herod to try and go and execute other Christians, namely Peter. Again, in Acts chapter 14, Luke records an account of Jews who were in the city of Iconium who were spreading rumors among the Gentiles to turn them against the Christians, which led to attempts to stone the believers. So we know that the Jews of that time hated Christians. But it was not just the Jews. Even the Gentiles hated Christians in Peter's day. In the book of Acts again, Luke writes about a riot that erupted in Ephesus, which started with the silversmiths in that town. These silversmiths opposed the Christians because Christians were speaking out against the worship of false gods, such as Artemis, the goddess, uh, the Greek goddess that, that was popular there. A profitable work for the silversmiths was to make many figurines of the goddess Artemis. And so these Gentile silversmiths felt that the Christians, who were teaching that God is the one true God, were threatening business for them. And because of that, they rioted against the Christians in that town. So with these accounts, we can tell that these early Christians had to live in great dependence on the Lord's grace. There was such a heavy amount of mistreatment and persecution that they could only have pressed on through God's enablement to endure. And only a heaven-sent peace could have surpassed their earthly experiences as aliens scattered throughout the Roman world. In Peter's long, embellished address to his readers, Peter also describes them with this decoration as being chosen. How are they chosen? The readers were chosen, Peter says, according to God the Father's foreknowledge. By calling the readers' attention to their status as chosen people of God, Peter meant to strengthen and to encourage the readers amid their persecution. It was by grace that, like Peter, God chose these dispersed Christians to follow him. Peter also says that the readers were chosen by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. This was how God executed his purpose of election and holiness. God's grace was extended to those early Christians as the Holy Spirit sanctified them to obey. So Peter's calling out of the way the readers were chosen was a reminder of God's supreme knowledge and control, and it was intended to be a comfort to the readers or a source of peace. When Peter says that these readers were chosen, what were they chosen for? Peter says they were chosen for obedience. He says to obey Jesus Christ. To be chosen for obedience then implies that they were disobedient before. They were disobedient and then chosen to be obedient. But after God's initial saving grace, God sustained them by his continued grace in order to live obediently. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 again. Peter uses the word chosen again here to describe his audience. He begins, but you are a chosen race. Peter says that they were chosen in order to proclaim the excellencies of God 
and that before they were chosen, when they were disobedient, they were in darkness. And now, after having been chosen, and after having believed, they exist in God's marvelous light. And that's another encouraging reminder and truth for these alien Christians. It was an encouraging reminder for the persecuted Christians who would have felt like life was bleak and dark. Peter ends that section in chapter 2 by pointing to God's grace and his mercy. He says there, uh, You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Christians received God's mercy, and there was no longer separation and conflict between them and God. So instead, what did they have? They had peace. So grace and peace were for these believers. The final declaration of Peter's address to his readers is kind of a confusing one. So after he points them out as being chosen for obedience, Peter says that they were also chosen to be sprinkled with Christ's blood. So based on your Christian experience today, you know that sprinkling blood on a person is not something that's typically done. Uh, Neither was it a regular occurrence in Jewish tradition. So you might ask, where did this come from? If you read Peter's entire letter, you'll see that Peter has tons of references to Old Testament texts. Many of them are direct quotes. Some of them are implicit references. And this sprinkling of blood seems to be an implied reference to Exodus chapter 24. So by this point in Exodus chapter 24, Moses has already led the Israelites out of Egypt, and they're camped at the base of Mount Sinai. And Moses received the Ten Commandments and the other laws that the Lord required in order to set the nation of Israel apart for himself. And then Moses reads the entire book of the covenant to the Israelites, and then the Israelites respond by saying, we will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. And so the nation of Israel promises to obey the Lord. And then immediately after that commitment, Moses' actions were a response to this vow to obey. And that was this sprinkling of blood. So let me read that section to you from Exodus 24, 5 through 8. He, Moses, sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the blood or book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So fast forward back to today's text, Peter, um, or 1 Peter 1. And Peter uses this metaphor of sprinkling the believers with Christ's blood to point to the atoning work of Christ's sacrifice. Obviously, most of the readers weren't present at Christ's crucifixion. Um, So what did it mean to be sprinkled with his blood? It was their faith in Jesus' shedding of his blood on the cross that brought them into the new covenant. And in the new covenant, with their new heart, they would obey the Lord and his word. We understand that God's grace is sufficient for the believer. 
2 Corinthians 12.9. In God's choosing of the exiled Christians, he empowered them to fulfill what he expected from them. Yet in this greeting from Peter, he reminds them with this metaphor of sprinkling blood that Christians also have a responsibility to obey. When they accepted Christ as Lord of their lives, they essentially declared, from now on, we will be obedient. So to wrap up our inspection of the readers of this letter, we saw that though the early church was persecuted and though they suffered, Peter reminded them of God's purpose for choosing them. God chose them for holiness and obedience. While they have the responsibility to do that, they can only obey by God's grace. They must depend on the grace and peace of the full three-part person of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all of whom are mentioned in Peter's address to his readers. In the same way, we here must recognize that our citizenship is ultimately in heaven as well. If you're in Christ this morning, you were chosen by God for holiness. You were redeemed by Christ's blood. And you were sealed by the Holy Spirit who enables you to obey and increase in holiness. So God's grace and peace are yours to preserve you as you endure persecution and suffering in this life. As we come to the final part of Peter's greeting, we've seen how God's grace and peace was given to Peter, the apostle of Christ. And then we saw how God's grace and peace was given to the chosen exiles that Peter wrote to. And now we'll see how God's grace and peace can be received in the fullest measure. Peter's greeting here ends with the phrase, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. What does it mean for grace and peace to be yours? First, we must recognize that neither grace nor peace are things we can obtain by our own will or our own ability. They are both given to us by God. Uh, let's look at grace. Let's first look at grace. Grace is given by God. Later in this letter, Peter refers to his readers as stewards of the manifold grace of God. That's in 1 Peter 4, verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What we see here is that grace is manifold meaning God gives grace in many ways. And the readers we see here were stewards. They were given grace by God to use for his own purposes. And so we see the giver of grace. Later in this letter, Peter wrote of God being the giver of grace in chapter 5. Chapter 5, Peter exhorts his readers to be humble toward one another. And he quotes the proverb, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What we can learn from that here is that um, Scripture is clear. In order to receive grace, for it to be yours, you must clothe yourself with humility. Uh, look, let's look at peace now. Just as grace is given by God, so peace is also given by God. Jesus in the upper room comforted his disciples with these words, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And then in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, the Apostle Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, 
by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the Apostle Paul here instructs the Philippians to pray and to ask God for peace, the peace of God, the kind of peace that overcomes anything that we might encounter can come only from the Lord. So we know that grace and peace are not inherently ours. And so when Peter says, may grace and peace be yours, he's not telling his readers that they should strive to obtain more peace and grace. Instead, he's praying that God would give grace and peace to his readers. Do you need more grace and peace in your life? You must ask the Lord humbly in prayer. In his greeting to his readers, Peter prays for grace and peace to be theirs, but again, he decorates it. He decorates it with the words, to the fullest measure. How can grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure? To, for that, I want to look at Second Peter. So in Peter's second letter to the same audience, to the scattered Christians, he uses a similar greeting of greater grace and greater peace. So turn a couple pages forward with me to read that. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2, Peter writes this, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Again, we see here that Peter embellishes his greeting uh, to his readers. And this time, he describes how he would wish for the Christians to obtain fuller grace and fuller peace. And that is through increased knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. In both of his letters, when Peter wishes for increased measures of grace and peace, more grace and peace are to come to them as they read Peter's letter. This letter that Peter wrote is saturated with God's word and revelation of his will for his readers. Peter knew that the church needed greater measures of grace and peace in order to match the intensity of opposition and persecution that they were facing. This greeting, therefore, is a prayerful request from Peter that the church would continue to run the race and that they would run to win. And prayerful requests are the key words there. It's not a mathematical formula where if you read this letter, then you will certainly receive greater grace and peace. Uh, because remember that God's grace is his unmerited favor towards us. There's nothing we can do to earn it. So Peter's audience was suffering. And to stand firm in grace and peace, Peter showed them that they must humbly come before the Lord in prayer and they must grow in their knowledge of him. So let me ask you, Cascades Bible Church, are you suffering for your faith? Are you mistreated? Are you alienated because of your faith? If not, thank the Lord that you aren't experiencing it right now. But remember that Jesus did not promise complete peace on earth all the time for his disciples. In fact, he said, you will be hated by all because of my name. A disciple is not above his teacher. So for those of you who do feel like aliens uh, and who do experience mistreatment because of your faith, remember this three-part greeting from the Apostle Peter. Remember the example of grace and peace in Peter's life as he followed Christ. 
Remember the example of grace and peace for the scattered Christians who were chosen by an omniscient God for holiness and obedience? And remember that as you pray and grow in your knowledge of God and his Son, our Lord, he will grant you the fullest, fullest measures of grace and peace to match your circumstances. And so next week, we will see how Peter offers grace and peace in fuller measure to his readers by reminding these chosen exiles that the gospel of their salvation is a prime reason to rejoice amid their suffering. Let's pray. Father God, as we read these opening verses of the Apostle Peter's letter, we're struck by this greeting of grace and peace. Thank you for Peter's example of receiving your grace and peace to be used as your instrument. As we look at the Christians of that day, we can in some ways relate to the mistreatment that they experienced. But what an encouragement it is to know that we can come to you humbly and ask you for grace and peace to endure. As citizens of heaven and as the people of God, may we, Cascades Bible Church, go out this week fully aware that we are your possession and may we proclaim your excellencies everywhere we go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.